Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 57 of the Haskincast podcast. It is early Sunday morning. We've been earthquake-free for a while. I probably sound a little rusty because it's uh, for me, it's early in the morning. And uh, I'm just so excited to get into Stranger Things Season 3, Episode 7 review, almost to the end. Uh, it's been exciting. It's been a great journey. And I've really enjoyed this season, I have to say. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I really didn't like Season 2 as much, but this season has been fantastic. Yes, I've pointed out some things that didn't really seem right or didn't really seem to make sense to me. But overall, fantastic. Great action. Great relationship building, tearing apart, rebuilding really, really good uh, pace for this season. I've really liked it. I, the thing that sucks about Stranger Things is that it's usually only a handful of episodes per season. And then you wait a year, year and a half, and you get a handful of episodes on like, you get used to shows that, you know, like Orange is the New Black or Lost or whatever, you get like 20 plus episodes per season. And uh, it, it's a lot more to enjoy, but these storylines are pretty intense. So I, I would imagine that keeping up that pace as a writer having so many things going on or, or if you had to take this one storyline and then stretch it over 20 episodes would probably be a lot more filler and a lot less interesting. So it's, it's an undiluted season and uh, I, I, maybe that works best for this particular uh, show, but at the same time, I'm kind of like, but, but there's only eight, like I want more, like do two stories a season. I don't care. Uh, but that's just because I enjoy it. And that's uh, that's a kudos to the writers, to the directors, to the production team, to the actors, to the makeup artists, to the set designers, to the uh, graphics people, to the scoring team, to the sound designers. Just everybody's uh, firing on all cylinders on the show. Uh, you know, and, and of course, there's things that aren't going to be perfect. And that's OK. I just point them out from for the point of interest and uh, for maybe some understanding more so than uh, like I'm not trying to to knock them or anything by the things that I, I see. And again, they're just the things I see. So let's talk about uh, episode seven. It was uh, another just uh, uh, full ride action packed. There were some lulls, some comedic moments, and uh, that's just the way that the show style is. Uh, I thought there was a little much of it on this one. I think that the the thing with Steve and Nancy just dragged on a, a little longer than it needed to, to get to that point, but we'll get to that. Um, the first thing is I want to ask you guys, do you think that Will is actually the sort of tracking device for, for the Beast to know where this group is? Because every time they are near it, you know, his neck changes color. He puts his hand to his neck. He senses the Beast. And everybody's like, okay, Will's warning us. But has anybody sat back and said, maybe he's the reason that this thing knows where we are? Because he can sense it. It can probably sense him. I mean, it's logic on his basic level. And uh, I have to really wonder about that. And so when it tracked them to the house, how would it have known where they were? It wasn't physically connected to any of them yet, except for the, you know, the, the bridge between Billy and L. But they were separated in separate places. They weren't connected. So I really don't think that that was it. I really think it's Will. Um, and maybe they'll realize that at some point. And then we'll see more separation as they're like, you know, Will, you can't be around us because then this thing will know where we are. We'll see. But I do think that that is, uh, is, is interesting. But the show itself opens with, uh, you know, the 4th of July carnival and the mayor who has a slightly Southern accent at some point, for some reason, uh, he's, you know, he's there with broken nose and just ready to party. I'm not really sure. They don't really show enough of him to, to get uh, a sense of how people feel about him. You, you see in one episode that he's not liked because of some of his actions, but that's typical for anybody in a political position. 
but you really don't get the sense of whether the people like him or not. There's no real interaction with him and, and anyone except for a couple of little things here and there, um, like the the uh, hot dog cart or whatever it was. So I don't know. You really don't know. But he's there. Everyone's really just there for the celebration. I doubt that they're there to see him. And uh, so he does this uh, sometimes English, sometimes Southern accent. And uh, then the, the party gets started. So you know that this is going to be the... Um, the basic uh, point of some of the action here. And, uh, and that's cool because carnivals are always great. They're exciting. There's lots of lights, there's noise, there's crowds, there's people are happy. They're playing games, they're doing rides and it's a good setting, really good setting. It's, it's also a great place to hide action because there's so many people, there's so many things, there's so many lights that, that you can move a lot of action around a location like that and, uh, and, and really do some cool things, which they did. And, um, the first thing, uh, of course, is, uh, you know, Karen and family on the Ferris wheel. No idea where her other kid is. Um, I don't know. He's fine. He's like nine. He'll meet me somewhere. And uh, <laughs> really, really interesting how careless these parents are with relation to where their kids are. And uh, but, uh, you know, it's a, it's a cute little scene. You know, she's kind of rebuilding herself in the family after she nearly uh, split them up with an affair without any of them knowing. And, uh, I, I like that. I like the dynamic. Obviously the husband is still just like a, a paper roll cap that won't explode. It's, he's just, there's just nothing there. And, um, the fact that he even goes on these rides, I have to give him props for that. Cause he seems like the kind of guy that would just say, Oh no, you go. And I'll just sit here on this bench and wait and do absolutely nothing until you arrive. So I like that. He's actually at least going on the rides with them, but here's, here's the thing. Why is it in television and in movies, whenever a child points something out, that is out of the norm, the parents always ignore the child. Oh, it's nothing. So the child's like, hey, the trees are moving. Trees don't move on their own like that. So there should have been some sort of attention paid to that. Like, what? where are you seeing these trees moving? What's going on? Instead, she's like, oh, just ignore this thing that, that's not out of the, you know, that's not normal and just watch these fireworks because they're really cool. So, you know, it, it's a typical TV movie trope, but I don't know. It just, after everything that these people have been through, it just seems like they would pay more attention to what their children are saying. Um, and again, I don't know how much Karen knows, but if it, your child says the trees are moving, it just seems like you would be curious at, at the very least, like what trees are moving? Where are you seeing this? You know, just something because that's a weird thing to say. And she, and she wasn't saying it in a joking manner. She was saying it with concern. So I don't know. Uh, I, I don't understand this trope, but it's very, very common. And of course it would change. It's, it's kind of a plot device. It would change things completely. If the parents actually did listen to their children, things would move much faster. You'd have a lot less build time um, because it's usually early on that, that children say things like that. So 11 reveals that uh, the beast said it was building something uh, for her. They assume that it's an army and it kind of makes sense that they would think that because they've seen, you know, other people get taken one at a time and uh, you would think that it's converting them or, or doing something with them. Uh, of course, it's it's really an army of one, but that's such a one that it really doesn't need an army. Uh, and uh, so, so I'm, I kind of follow their logic on that. I probably would think the same thing. Um, but when they see the creature... There's a couple of things that I, I, I have about this. One, that creature didn't seem that tall and it was really knocking trees over from the just above the baseline of the tree coming out of the ground, which shows its power because that's going to be a pretty um, 
you know, solid point. It's not like the top of the tree where you could have some leverage. And, but, the, but it wasn't that tall. It, it didn't seem to be that big. It wasn't really that far away. So the first thing is, I don't really think that they had that much time to prepare the way that they did from the time that they saw the beast until it actually got to the house and attacked. That's one thing. The second thing is, how did it go from not being that tall to being far taller than the house they were in to where it could hover over the roof and still, you know, be grounded on the ground? And when you see the shot from the outside after that initial battle, you really get a sense of how tall this thing is. And I'm like, I compared to its legs, the, the height of its head didn't really look quite right to me. Um, stunning graphics, though. Absolutely amazing. Very, very well done. Sound design on point. Um, but I'm just really not understanding the size of this thing. And it's not like it was adding people to it as it was walking through the woods towards the house. So not really sure uh, about how that part of it works. Maybe there's something that I'm just uh, flat out missing. But in any case, they prepared to the extent that they did, and uh, and it got to the house, and then just all hell broke loose. Um, I'm going to get to that battle in a minute, but I want to um, I want to backtrack a little bit to uh, Steve and Nancy um, because they're just you know at this point they're helplessly hopped up on this truth serum, and uh, you know I don't know the realities of truth serum if it's actually more of like a, a laughing gas, which it seems to be in this episode, whatever they, the Russians were using. But um, it really has like a long-term impact on them. So I, I'm figuring it's got to be at least a good hour from the time that they were uh, escaping the, the facility to the time that they're in the bathroom. And uh, that's part of what I didn't like about this episode is like that comedic stuff just went on way too long. I mean, that could have been cut down uh, as far as I'm concerned by, by quite a bit because it really was just in, in the whole... Um, the whole thing was just to get to that, you know, hey, I really like you and hey, I'm a lesbian thing. But I, I, I don't know. I just think that was a slower build. But, uh, you know, you've got X amount of episode to fill. It can't all be action. You need some exposition. But um, I don't know. They could have done more in the carnival. They could have done a lot of things. And they, they chose to spend a, an awful lot of time on that. So, again, just my personal, uh, personal opinion. But uh, so they're just like, you know helpless. And I totally get frustration from, you know, uh, Dustin and Erica, because if you've ever been around somebody who's really drunk and thinks that they're the funniest thing in the world, and you're trying to get them out of a party into a car or whatever, um, I totally get their, uh, them being frustrated with this, especially since Dustin can't reach anybody. And uh, he, he's like, you know, Erica's no help. She can't even keep a, an eye on them halfway down the aisle in a movie theater. So, you know, Dustin's just you know, like, you know, I can't get through to my friends. I can't do this. I can't do that. And now I'm dealing with these people that are completely ridiculous to manage. So I kind of really feel for Dustin in this one. But uh, but it's still it still got to the point. You know, I, I like that Steve's being vulnerable, even if he's hopped up on something. But he's like reaching out saying, hey, I think you're like the most awesome thing. And then you understand that the talk in the last episode where uh, she's she's talking about how she liked him and everything is completely misleading, which I think was very well done. But in reality, I don't know, maybe in the moment she didn't realize how it sounded and she did later. But I, I don't know. I kind of think that she would have, maybe she didn't understand that that he uh, he's attracted to her. Maybe she did. I don't know. But that after you get the reveal, you look back at the original speech and you're like, that's kind of weird that you said it that way. Um. But that's okay. You know, it, it's just little stuff, not a big deal. But it, it to me, is just um, misleading. 
And uh, you want to at least be able to feel like you're understanding the show. So that's one thing that kind of draws is, is a slight drawback for me. But at the end of the day, she's like, yeah, I, 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 I like you. And then she's like, I really like you, but I'm a lesbian. So you're saying that I just really like you as a friend, like you're really cool and fun to hang out with. But she said that first. So of course, he's feeling like, oh, great. You know, I, I like you too. This is going somewhere. And then of course, she just shuts that down like you're late on a cable bill. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's interesting. It's, it's kind of fun to watch. I just wish they would have gotten there more quickly. So uh, Dustin, you know, is the strong one, the science camp kid, and he's uh, he's putting things together. He's making it happen. He's doing everything he can to reach out and uh, get a solution to this problem. He's very proactive. His instincts are are pretty great. Although I have to say, when they uh, finally get out of the mall and then they see the cops coming in the gate, I don't know why that door would have been open because those are usually you know exit only doors. Uh, to a mall so that kids can't sneak in and do things like that. But uh, in any case, they did sneak in and do things like that. So um, kind of, uh, kind of weird, but Dustin's instincts were to go to the door. They went in, they, they got, uh, you know, into the corridor. Um, you just go, go with it. You know, I, I know the reality of that would be that door would be locked, but in, in their world, it's not. So you just kind of go with it. And uh, it just kind of continues on their, their escape. But uh, but getting back to the uh, the big battle here, graphically, this was so impressive. And the sound design was fantastic. Everything was just amazing. I love that the, that the kids were fairly fearless, most of them, and just jumped in and, and attacked and didn't stand there and just let Elle do everything. They tried to help. Um, Jonathan was, was a big help in that. Nancy, obviously. Uh, Lucas finally stepped in and did something. So I was excited to see that. And uh, very, very cool scene. Very cool scene. Um, I'm not really sure how Elle's powers exactly work. When the two mouths were coming in from different directions, she kind of held on for quite a while before she uh, squashed them. And I don't know if she needed to build up strength, if she needed to, you know, kind of get away from the hold enough to be able to do that. Um, but and she's still young. I mean, she's just a kid, so maybe she's still kind of learning how to utilize her powers. But it seems like you don't know if a third mouth is coming in, so you're going to want to dispel those two as quickly as possible um, because you know it, it's easy when you see that there's only going to be two and you can hold on to it. But there could have been a third, a fourth, a fifth. So it seems like you'd want to dispel those quickly. Um, no one else really jumped in at that point to kind of help her as she had them held. They could have grabbed the axe and started chopping away again. Um, but either way, it was uh, it was cool. They they definitely did a, an amazing job with that scene. Um, very very impressive. And uh, I do have a question because this thing has some pretty massive strength. I mean, it can bust through the side of a house. And uh, when it grabbed L, and then Mike reached for her, and then each of the kids reached for her to try and, and and keep her in the house. How did that thing not just rip all of them right out of the roof? It seems like it has some pretty massive strength, so uh, it really seems like it should have been able to do that. But of course, uh, for dramatic effects, uh, it, it didn't get all of them, and then they start battling it and uh, and getting Elle free uh, with part of it attached to her ankle. And uh, I had hoped that that wasn't just something that they were going to show and let go of. I'm glad that they continued along with that. She's actually injured. She is human. She does have uh, vulnerabilities, and this thing was was uh, you know planting a seed inside of her that uh, they were going to have to deal with. And uh, obviously it's going to weaken her. And you could tell when she stood up and took those first couple steps that something wasn't right. And, uh, and then of course, you know, in the, in the grocery store. So uh, I'm glad that they, they followed up on that and just didn't make that look like a thing that wasn't going to matter. 
But here's a question, and, and go back and check this out. I could swear, I could swear that as they're running out of the house, a female voice calls somebody fuckwat. I could be wrong. I could have misheard it, but I went back and listened a bunch of times, and I'm pretty sure somebody said fuckwat. I don't know who they were talking to. I don't know if they were talking about the monster or, hey, get in the car, fuckwad, or what. But somebody, I'm pretty sure, said that. If you guys hear something different, let me know what you hear. But I could swear it was. And I think it might have been Nancy, but I'm not sure. Um, but just very out of place. Um, I don't know what the context of that would have been. And I don't know what uh, what uh, would have been the point of that. Uh, there's no re- real reason in the middle of an escape to be picking on people. And uh, it just doesn't seem like a natural thing that would happen. So back to the uh, to the movie theater with Steve and Dustin and uh, group. They're watching Back to the Future. And I was really curious about this because I thought this movie came out a bit later. Now, in the storyline, at the beginning of this season, they said that the date of the Russians breaking, trying to break through the wall was June 28th, 1984. And we know that this happens after season two because they sealed, the, the Russians are trying to break through that seal that L put up there. So if that's the, it looks like that's the same seal from what they're saying, that same sort of vaginal opening thing. And that being the case, that had to happen after the events of season two. This looks like after the summer. Um, so if it takes place in June to early July of 1984, Back to the Future didn't come out until July of 1985. So how much time has actually passed here? Was it that this was actually a year after because the kids haven't gotten that much older, um, but maybe they have. So I'm really confused on the timeline now. It seems like uh, it should still be 84, but uh, obviously the opening events and the time to the time that Dustin came home from camp, could that have been a year later? Uh, another whole school year has passed and they're doing that to match the growth of the kids in real life because they do appear somewhat older. Um, I don't know, but I do find that to be an interesting point that they've really not, um, really not given you much indication of the timeline on this. So uh, it, it could be a year and it could be July of 85 now instead of July of 84. Cause um, being the fact that it came out on July 3rd, and it's it's an unknown movie to these folks, and you can tell by their reactions in the theater that this is their first time seeing it. Um, Steve hasn't seen it yet because he doesn't really understand what's going on. So it, it, if it is July of 85, then that throws my theory of the timeline off by quite a bit. Uh, I would be curious to know a little bit more about that, but uh, that seems to be the case if, if they're going with the actual time release of Back to the Future in our timeline. Uh, versus the Inside the Stranger Things timeline. So moving on, the next uh, the next scene is in the car, and we've got Hopper and uh, Joyce up in the front seat, and then we've got the Russian scientist and Murray, our colorful instigator in the back seat, trying to get uh, Hopper and Joyce to hook up. I don't know what his fascination is with other people having sex. Maybe he just doesn't like to be around that the tension uh, that, that's going on between two other people. Because remember, he did this to Nancy and Jonathan in the last season. And, uh, you know, it's eventually going to happen. We talked about this. It's going to be a slow build relationship. They're finally uh, making their connection after they're like, nah, I don't like you. And nah, this isn't a date to uh, eventually holding hands while they're uh, a little bit nervous inside the uh, the rotor ride at the carnival. 
and uh, it's it's a cool little scene. It's it's kind of an important uh, pivot for them, and uh, needed to happen. But I I just don't know what it is with Murray. And then of course the scientist is getting all invested in what's going on with them, and um, it's kind of a weird thing. But uh, the uh, the Russian did talk about you know he's he's revealing the information to Murray, which is really important considering what happens in just a few minutes. And uh, he talks about the two key uh, method, which is uh, Hopper is familiar with that. And of course, we talked about that in the episode one review. And uh, yeah, I, I'm still not buying that you would need two people with the way that they've set this up. But in general, yeah, that's, you know, normally there would be two keys. They would be far enough apart where one person could do it. They would have to be turned simultaneously uh, or at least within like a half second of each other for the machine to recognize that uh, a, a sequence had been initiated. But in this case, like I said, I think one person could do it. And uh, but it's an important it's it's important because it's going to come up, obviously, that they're going to have to deal with this. They're going to have to uh, recreate this and they're going to have to find the keys and the place to put them. So they're bringing it up again to remind you this is how it works. We're going to see this, I'm sure, in episode eight uh, or or maybe in uh, season four. Not sure. But uh, but that's pretty much what happened in this scene and uh, just kind of setting up the uh, the Hopper Joyce storyline uh, to it, uh, come to a, a head here pretty soon. Uh, and then we go back to the kids and Nancy figuring out that the creature actually is merging with the people. And uh, I think that this is kind of important because I, I don't really know how she arrives at this conclusion that that's what's physically happening. But uh, but she's right. So that kind of dispels the army theory. They really are dealing with one entity at the end of the day, even though it can break off into uh, other things and come at them. Uh, it's really at this point, they're just dealing with the conglomeration of the creature. Um, so as we come to the final battle, we need to find a way to get everybody together. And uh, Dustin has broken away from Erica and uh, his his two helpless people and is now trying to reach out to uh, his other group. And Mike gets the transmission, but because the batteries are low, it's not working. He can't, he keeps cutting out. And I don't know if, I don't really remember that much about 80s walkie talkies, but it, it, maybe it's possible that because the batteries are low, it doesn't receive enough signal to be able to transmit or receive properly. I don't know. That seems off to me. But, uh, but one thing I do know about 80s walkie talkies, like I mentioned before, is that you, have to, you can't be talking and hearing a response at the same time. It literally cuts off the receiving channel if you have that button in to transmit. So they're really not giving each other enough time to speak. You're hearing very fragmented things. And, uh, you know, when, when Dustin's trying to transmit and Mike really can't hear him, he should know that pressing the button to respond to Dustin to say, I can't hear you isn't going to work because Dustin is still trying to transmit and you can't break in on that. So, um, because one walkie-talkie is not dominant over the other. So, uh, again, not really buying how it played out, but it was important for them to connect and, and at least get clues to be able to um, get back with each other and get all together again as we gear up for the last episode. Um, so, yeah, it's, you know, I, I would, I'm so tempted to just get a pair of walkie-talkies and play with it, but I'm pretty sure that's how they worked because that was uh, something that was kind of frustrating when I would play with them with friends as a, as a kid. Um but uh, getting back into this, you know, Robin and Steve thing, um, I think we've, we've talked uh, about this, but it got kind of weird because, you know, when two people are drugged, the drug is not going to affect them the exact same way at the exact same time. So Steve starts seeing uh, all this psychedelic uh, thing in the lights and he gets all reverbed out in his voice. 
but but the same thing then starts happening to Robin like right at the same time and uh and then they both throw up right at the same time and maybe that's from looking up at the dizzying lights but I don't know that just seemed kind of weird that they're experiencing the exact same thing at the exact same time together um because I don't think that that would really happen that way and then of course I talked about this scene went on like way too long um and then uh this is this is an interesting thing to me. So when Dustin finds them, he he storms into the bathroom with Erica, and he finds them on the floor, and he's like, "What's what's up? What's what's going on?" And he's all upset. Watch Erica's responses to Dustin because she's not concerned about what's happening to the their two friends on the floor. She's actually more like Dustin. What are you doing? Why are you being like this? I mean, her reactions are priceless, and I don't understand them. <laughs> you know. She lost them. They ran off. She's, they're, they're supposed to be staying together so that they're all safe, so that they can all get to safety. And she's uh, getting annoyed with Dustin, who's yelling at them for running off because she couldn't watch them. And I, I don't know. That just is a really weird reaction for her to have. And she's very, very animated. So um, a little over the top, but, uh, but definitely just didn't really make sense why she, like, she should be like, yeah, why did you guys run off? Yeah, you know, and... and uh, taking responsibility for not for losing them when she had that only w- uh, job to do. So I, I thought that was a little bit funny and didn't really seem to fit in, but maybe that's part of the comedic thing that they're going for the, the levity before the, the final battle here. Um, and then we're back at the carnival and the mayor spots Hopper and uh, he starts calling his Russian buddies to come from wherever they are and hurry up and get here, which of course they all show up immediately and uh, I don't really know if uh, if, if the uh, Russian Arnold Schwarzenegger here was was targeting the scientist or not, because maybe he just saw him before he saw Hopper and he just took his his opportunity to take the scientist out. But I may have forgotten to mention that in, in this whole Terminator lookalike thing, he also is wearing the black gloves, like similar to what uh, the Terminator was in the first movie. So there's I, I'm pretty sure that this is some kind of. Um, reference or nod to the Terminator because they do a lot of 80s references in the show and uh, in, you know, getting Matthew Modine and stuff like that. I think it's kind of cool, but uh, I I really think that this is a Terminator reference and even down to the gloves, the spiky hair, the stone look on his face, he really looks robotic. Um, But uh, again, I could be wrong, but that's just uh, how I'm seeing it. So thankfully though, before the scientist gets shot winning his Woody Woodpecker, after he has an extreme amount of support popping balloons from all these kids around him. I mean, he couldn't have been there that long. He'd only had to pop a couple of balloons and yet all these kids are like, yeah, you can do it. And you know, like he'd been there for a half an hour at a poker tournament. And, uh, and then of course he gets shot, but thankfully he told Murray everything or at least enough to where they'll, uh, they'll have the information they need to move on without him. Uh, then they're going to have to deal with how they get in without him and find the right location and all that. But uh, but the, the major information was transferred. So, you know, that they have a fighting chance. And, uh, so the, the Russians take off and, and once Murray lets uh, Hopper and Joyce know that the scientist is dead, then they all kind of separate and Hopper tries to distract everybody so that Joyce and Murray can get to safety. And, uh, they really, Murray and the scientist shouldn't have separated. That's the thing. Like he said, he should have said, let's get uh, some corn dogs and then we're going to go play some games. Like they should not have separated. The guy can't speak English. He doesn't know where he's at. He's obviously never been to a carnival before and it's going to be sensory overload. And there's people that are after them. They're in danger just leaving the house. They were in danger staying at the house. Murray was the one that kept saying they're going to be able to track us. They're going to be able to track us. So being out anywhere where they're exposed 
certainly is going to be, you know, hey, people could be watching the carnival because we know people are looking for us really makes sense. So it was kind of dangerous for them to to go there. But at the same point, like him separating from the scientists, that was just the dumbest thing he's done up until this point. Uh, also, he could get a precious corn dog and he had no idea where the Russian was at. So he could have been wandering anywhere. He could have been, you know, and, and not being able to communicate with anybody uh, was certainly not going to help him if he needed help in an emergency situation. So that really didn't make sense to me. But in any case, he wins his Woody Woodpecker. He has his last moment of joy before he gets shot in the chest and killed. Murray runs off and, and uh, finds Joyce and Hopper after their uh, time meeting up with Karen on the rotor. And let's talk about the rotor scene here. I really don't believe that this teenager that's running the ride is going to be such a bitch that she's going to be like, I don't care if you're standing in an area where you're not supposed to be. I'm just going to start this thing up. Like there are rules, there are insurance regulations, there's all kinds of things that they would have had to make sure that everyone was standing on the wall before she started that ride. So the only reason that all of that happened, the only reason that they went in the ride to get to Karen instead of meeting her outside was just so that we could get to the point where Hopper and Joyce would have their connection, where they would have a reason to hold hands. Other than that, the scene doesn't make sense at all. Not at all. And they would have had to jump the line to get in there. And I'm sure people would have been complaining about that. Hopper didn't say, hey, I'm a cop. Like, just nothing. Just, okay, just start the ride and we'll we'll end up on the wall. Um, didn't really like that. But that was all a device just to get Hopper and Joyce to hold hands so that we can now see, okay, now we're flipping from the we're going to deny this to, wait a minute, there actually is a connection and they're both kind of admitting it at this point. Um, then uh, Dustin says something really interesting to Steve when Steve reveals that uh, he gave them Dustin's home address. I don't know if he knew where Dustin lived, if he knew what his address was, but somehow when he's under the uh, influence of the truth serum, he does. And uh, so Dustin's like, no, man, you got to tough it out like a man. So here is one of those things where the writers, I think, are dropping in a precursor to something that's going to happen somewhere down the line, where Dustin is going to be in one of these being tortured for information scenes. And he's, he's saying, this is how you do it. But he's never been through that. You know, it's really easy to sit on the sidelines and say, I know you've been drugged. I know your mind isn't working, but you just need to tough it out. Like, that's just a stupid thing to say. But I think that this is setting up a scene at some point in the future, whether it's this season or not, where Dustin will be the one that's being interrogated, whether it's under drugs or not. I don't know. But I do think that this is a, a precursor. Then, um, let's see. So the, uh, the whole funhouse scene, I thought was really, really cool. Um, those are really kind of tough to shoot, especially doing mirror rooms, because you can catch the cameraman or or a boom mic or something at any point in any reflection. So I kind of have to wonder if that was shot green screen or not. It, either way, the end result was fantastic. I didn't see anything that was out of line. I thought it was very, very well done. Um, it's it's kind of, you know, it's been done before, but certainly in uh, in in the pace of all of this, I thought it was very well done. What I don't get is how Hopper all of a sudden is this just awesome fighter. I mean, really just a badass in this scene. And he's dealing with soldiers that are trained to fight. So uh, I, I don't know where this is coming from, um, considering some of the battles that he's been in before. But uh, definitely he was just a, a badass in this scene. Where I think um, where I think he failed was shooting the Russian in the chest and shoot and assuming that he was dead. Um, you know, 
bulletproof vests, even in the 80s, were very, very common, and especially when you're talking about these well-financed, high-powered um, uh, Soviet soldiers, he, this guy's certainly going to come prepared. So only shooting him a bunch of times in the chest seemed um, a bit of a weak move, considering he had no problem destroying the other guy before him. So I, I think a, a headshot would have been the smart thing to do and make sure he was out of the game. But of course, because of the plot, we can't have that. He can't be dead. So he's, he still has to be the Terminator sort of guy. And um, if this is actually some sort of Terminator crossover, then uh, a headshot would have been too revealing. You would have heard a metal sound, a, a bullet hitting metal sound, and uh, and it would have been revealed that he is actually a robot underneath of that scout, the, uh, skin. So assuming they're not going there, it was a silly move for him not to shoot the guy in the head um, to make sure that, that he wasn't dead. Because if, if you're going to shoot a soldier uh, only in the chest, there's a good chance he's wearing a bulletproof vest. So that seemed, um, that seemed a little un, uh, unlike somebody who should know better. And then uh, let's see, where are we at here? So uh, from there, uh, I, I loved, loved L throwing the car. I thought that was a great scene. Um, of course it's like right up to the last second, just like with Nancy in the hospital and the creatures like screaming right into her face, four inches away. And that's when L shows up, like right when they're about to get caught, that's when L shows up. And, uh, I don't know how they got to the second floor of the mall. That seemed, uh, strange to me why they were on the second floor instead of the first. Um, seems like that's a lot of wasted time, but maybe they, they had a better view from up there and, and they thought it was worth the time to make it to the second floor so they could see the whole mall. Uh, that's very possible. But um, so now everyone's back together and they're all getting acquainted. Um, Erica's now part of this, whether she wants to be or whether we want her to be or not. And uh, now also Robin is uh, uh, meeting the rest of the group for the first time. Um, I, I don't know how much Erica knew prior to this because she knew that Eleven existed Oh, that's probably because uh, Dustin told her when he was explaining to her what happened. Yeah. So uh, so that's okay. Um, so the only real question I have at the end of this episode is what does it mean that the creature has Elle's blood? Does that mean that the creature will have some of Elle's powers? How long will they take to manifest? And, and I mean, it seems to manifest things fairly quickly the way that it uh, just it ingests bodies and makes it part of it. Um Steve also, uh, or uh, Billy also had a connection with Elle's blood when he went to the uh, the grocery store. So I'm not sure what that means going forward. I don't know if that's going to mean the challenge is bigger or if that's just, it's going to be easier to track her now or what. But uh, that's certainly something that they made a point of showing. So I think there's going to be something to that. I'm really excited to head into episode eight and see how this whole thing ends. I think this has been a great season um, I usually don't get this enthralled with television shows. There's very few that have uh, gripped me the way that this season has. And uh, just kudos to everybody on the production. So uh, watch episode eight. I'm going to go watch episode eight and then come back and let's talk about it. See ya. See ya.